0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Rog Glass, who is a novelist, a biographer and an academic. He has published three novels, a collection of short stories and a graphic novel, as well as a highly acclaimed and award-winning biography of the great Scottish writer Alistair Gray. Roger's first novel, No Fireworks, was published in 2005 and was followed three years later by Hope for Newborns. His third novel, published in 2012, is the brilliantly titled Bring Me the Head of Ryan Giggs. His graphic novel, Doogie's War, was nominated for Best Graphic Novel at the Scottish Indie Comic Book Awards, while he has also published a short story collection, Love, Sex, Travel, Music, in 2013. Back in 2009, he won the Somerset Mom Award for Alistair Grey, a secretary's biography, and he remains a fan of, and an expert on Grey, as well as having become a friend of his up to his death last December. Describing himself as a bit of a Strathclyde University addict, Dr. Rog Glass, to give him his academic title, is returning to the university for his fourth time, having previously been a student, a writer in residence, and also a part-time lecturer. His new role will be as a senior lecturer in creative writing with his main specialism in fiction and also creative non-fiction. Rog or Dr Glass, I don't know what title you prefer. Uh, welcome to the podcast. That's
1: okay. My, my grandma Betty always wanted a, a a doctor in the family, but she was really clear that she wanted a proper doctor. You know? And by proper doctor, <laughs> she meant if I fall down, can you get me up again? I tend only to use the doctor with the bank manager or with somebody that, you know, I'm really not happy with but also i'm fairly sure won't ask me what kind of doctor i am not that i don't think it's legitimate i do but <laughs> I, I prefer the informal so
0: please call yeah me. but obviously i exactly if you're out in a restaurant and some something happens and somebody shouts is there a doctor in your house you're not going to put your hand up a doctor of literature <laughs> <laughs> you write a short story about the, the incident um in terms of obviously i've just you know read through just a brief biography of you, a potted history of your writing career your academic career and Obviously, academia or academia plays a big, a big role in, in, in your life now. Was that something that you've kind of just gravitated towards? Because obviously you start off as a, a student of creative writing and, then, and publish some really highly acclaimed work.
1: I had always assumed from when I was really young that university was something that I should do. My mum was a departmental secretary at UMIST in Manchester. And when uh, we were on holiday from school, me and my little brother used to go in and, and do our, either our homework or our coloring or a drawing or whatever in her office and it always struck me that she was in a position of great power because she was always having chemistry professors come into the room and go Pam I've got no idea what I'm doing help and so I've always had a great respect for people in that sort of role it was only really later that I realized that in my immediate family I was the first one to go to university and neither of my parents went on to A levels or had the opportunity to go to university but the community that I grew up in which is A pretty orthodox Jewish community in the south of Manchester. It was very, very much geared towards university right from the beginning. Uh, I went to a a Jewish primary school where we used to do mock exams for the posh private schools in our classes when we were sort of eight, nine, ten to prepare everybody for it. It was like this is what everybody was supposed to be doing. And it was only really that I appreciated the kind of background that I was from and the expectations that that had set for me later on. I was as many Jewish children are encouraged to go into professions that like many immigrant Jewish families that had come in three or four generations before, like mine, many of them had been tailors or had little businesses, small, independent businesses. And my family was similar. But by the time the third or fourth generation, the feeling was very much like that the children should go on and get something that was a, you know, a salaried position, something that was secure, something that would assimilate into the community. So I tried to do law at my levels and was horribly bad at it. And I hadn't done English. In fact, when I came to Strathclyde, I wasn't doing English at all, never mind creative writing. I was here to do politics and European studies. And because of the system in Scotland, which is so different to England, and you start off doing lots of different subjects and you, you can whittle it down later on. In fact, it doesn't really matter where you start. You can end up in a completely different place. So I took English as an elective, and I absolutely fell head over heels in love with contemporary Scottish literature. And it was at that point, really, that I felt excited by university. I was already three years into it. And I only then started to think about doing some writing of my own as a possible thing. And I could see that I was in a city that was full of vibrant writers, like ordinary people who weren't dead white men in portrait paintings, and that writing was a thing that you could do. And also that there were writers in that city in particular that, that really were exciting to me. So university and Glasgow Were all mixed up together for me from really early on, and that was a hugely, hugely positive experience. And because I love being part of a community rather than being isolated, and I'm a social animal, I always wanted to be part of universities and academic places where to be a book nerd was accepted (laughs) and was encouraged. You know, so it's not exactly what my parents might have imagined when they were encouraging/slash expecting me to go to university right from the beginning, but that's where I've ended up.
0: I mean, was that a kind of, was it revelatory? Because obviously if you said you hadn't really studied English before and then you started writing, had you done any writing yourself? Or was it just something that you kind of take that, I suppose it's a bit of courage where you have to sort of say, can I do this? And then once you do, you find you enjoy it and you think, you maybe find that you actually, you're quite good at it. And that's where you end up progressing.
1: Yeah, I had done, I had done some. And in fact, because we're moving house, my mum dropped off a file of my old stuff. Lots of people listening must have had that experience. But you're, you're way into adulthood parent comes around one day and says look this is the stuff I've had in the loft for 20 years and I want rid of it here you are <laughs> um, and uh, there was all sorts of things from uh, very early school days and reports and like, little poems that I'd written and small stories and things like that and even speeches and, but I don't think I'd ever done it consistently or felt like I was doing something where I was learning how it worked I was just doing it on instinct and it wasn't very good which is fine that's what you do when you're very young but I had, you know, I wasn't one of these writers that was constantly writing stories in my notebook from when I was four or five. For me, it was seeing that it was a real possible thing yeah. that other people could do. I know you've had Louise Welsh on this um, on this podcast. I, I heard your pod with, with Louise. I thought it was fantastic. She was one of the first writers in Glasgow that seemed to me to be an ordinary person who had had a job, who had then written a book and then published that book, that I would see walking up and down Byers Road. And although we weren't friends... And know her. That was some kind of permission to me. And I thought, oh, this is a possible thing. Oh, right. I'm quite practically minded. I'm I'm a shameless opportunist. So once I saw it was an opportunity, a thing that could be done, then I thought, right, well, I better get good at this. And I really desperately wanted to do it. Desperately. Bit by bit, opportunities came along.
0: 'Cause it's interesting you made a point there about you're a social animal, you like that sense of community and you wanted to be surrounded by writers because people and often writers say it's a it's a lonely pursuit because it's often it's just you with your notepad or a laptop and your thoughts and putting them putting them down. But you gravitated towards it because you like that sense of community that you found in Glasgow and
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean Glasgow's a hugely I don't need to tell you, you, Glasgow's a hugely vibrant place. But at that time where I was starting out, there were all sorts of exciting writers that were were coming through. And I wanted to read everybody just interested in the variety of kinds of writing that was coming out. And it didn't feel like there was an overarching type of thing that you had to do. You know, obviously there were the, by that point, elder generation of major writers who had changed the landscape, such as Agnes Owens and Alistair Gray and James Kelman and Liz and Jackie, all, all of the obvious names. But then there were also writers that were publishing their first books that... I felt we were doing fantastic work as well. And even in the little editorial group that I had when I was on the uh, Masters, which was at that time joint between Glasgow and Strathclyde, about four or five writers in that group that went on to do really, really good things that have continued to follow. I think Karen Campbell was in my editorial group, Maureen Mayant, who's published a couple of great books, Nick Brooks, who published a few books in the sort of early, mid-2000s there as well, around the time that I was getting started. So there was plenty to be excited about That gave me a sense of community. There were also plenty of live events and there were plenty of nights out. So you get all that solitary time in your room, but it can't be everything. Also, if you don't learn anything about the world or observe anything or share anything with anybody else, then there's a limit to what you can do on your own, I feel. I've always felt like I was at my best when I had a mixture of peace and chaos.
0: In terms of the podcast, uh, again, just for anybody who's just started listening, it's the, it follows the same format, but I just ask you various book choices, kind of t- charts through the, the story of your literary life, as it were. Um, and the first book I always take you back to is your favourite book from childhood, and the the one that you'd chosen was a book called Shakespeare's Stories for Children by Leon Garfield and Michael Foreman.
1: I still got a copy of this somewhere, and I went back and had a, a look out for it before we spoke. I could have chosen I'm sure like nearly everybody you have on, there's lots and lots of books you love as a child or else you wouldn't be a reader and a writer as an adult. But I was trying to pick something that said something about the way that I like to approach reading and writing now or something that showed me a way. I'm a great believer in mentoring and in just how young folk model themselves on what they see as possible. And I've always been interested in the creative response and in adaptation and in different versions of the same thing you know, responses to stories. And so although I really, I really, really struggled with Shakespeare and I resented Shakespeare by the time I got to him in school, as I know a lot of people who are really interested in reading do, the fact that there were these stories that were turned into a narrative that was accessible to me, that suddenly made those same stories fascinating. And all that had happened is somebody had gone through the Shakespeare plays and then turned them into fairly standard prose and told the story as if it was a series of short stories rather than a series of plays. And there were beautiful illustrations with them as well. But this was something that was an approach that I liked in different contexts. So I also liked translations of Greek myths or adaptations of Greek myths as a kid. In fact, my best friend as a child who's now a rabbi who's very good at, at telling stories as rabbis need to be you know, you've got to be able to give your sermon And we were driving around in my grandma's rubbishy car in manchester in the 90s and i'd say oh tell me the one about theseus again or something like that you know we were real nerds and uh, i so i always enjoyed versions of the familiar but made unfamiliar somehow or changed in some way or brought back to life so that's why i've chosen that that shakespeare one I've still got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about the insistence on Shakespeare at schools. I really believe that young people who are interested in the world around them, never mind interested in reading, should have an opportunity to read more in school. Things that speak to their experience, or at least a little bit closer to their experience. In Scotland, that would mean more books by Scottish writers or set in Scotland or set in a world that is recognisable to them. At school, I, I barely touched on anything that was published after the Second World War. So that's why I didn't take English at... I love a level of, at university because I thought, well, that's not something I'm interested in.
0: Because what I like about the, your choice is, and again, I've, I've said in a previous podcast, one of the guests, Graham Hunter, for the question, the book he couldn't be paid to read again, he just said Shakespeare. And it goes back to studying at school. I was the same. I, I didn't enjoy it at all. And it was only when Uh, my my kids were going through secondary school and when they were studying it and we went to a couple of I used to see a couple of performances and it was for me it was transformative because I actually really enjoyed seeing the play performed as it should have been rather than sitting reading it Uh and I think something like that for kids as you say just putting it into language they would understand and telling the story because you can always go back later on and once you know the story you maybe appreciate the text more yeah of course because apparently they also adapted them into I think they made them into TV adaptations
1: and it's just better that way. Also, I, mean, I think I would always rather watch a Shakespeare play that was somehow made relevant or changed or subverted or taken some element in the original and responded to that element in a way that makes it feel fresh What I always resented was just the kind of bold insistence that this was proper literature and you had to appreciate it. And this is how it had to be studied and that there there were predetermined answers to give about what symbolized what and that you were supposed to reproduce those. I mean, for me, that was the opposite of literature. And that's why I thought I wasn't interested in it, which thinking back seems kind of crazy now. But there must be millions of kids out there who would really appreciate and enjoy a version of Shakespeare as an adult, but have been switched off to all sorts of other literature, but anything that speaks to their own experience, their own community, their own times. Now, if you think about kids growing up in Scottish schools at the moment, just the sheer vibrancy of what is out there at the moment that could really speak to to what it's like to, to grow up in Scotland right now. And the same of course counts for every nation or nation in the world yeah. but if we're all battering our children with Shakespeare I think we're losing a lot and that doesn't do Shakespeare any favours but anyway I enjoyed those because
0: <laughs> it's funny you know partly touching on you had mentioned that one of the things you enjoy doing is mentoring. And I guess that's one of the the key things of the the kind of role you're in now. But sometimes that just one bit of advice, whether it's as a reader or as a writer. And when I was just doing some research on Liam Garfield and apparently his first book that he wrote, it was a kind of some pirate novel called Jack Holborn, but he wrote it for adults and he submitted it to the publishers and one of the editors read it and thought it was okay as an adult novel but said why don't you try this it's got a real potential as a children's novel which he then he was persuaded to write it for younger readers it took off and that's where he veered towards writing stories for younger readers and was a great success and you wonder if that one person hadn't seen that even things like the Shakespeare stories might have been lost to the world.
1: Oh that's fascinating yeah I didn't I didn't know that what you're describing is advice but it's also opportunity and um, what I tell my students often is to keep your eyes open for opportunities that might not have been you know, your original set idea of what you thought you wanted to be. That's not how life works anyway. And you can't say, right, I'm definitely going to take that path regardless of what happens. You have to respond to what happens to you along the way, right? But particularly for writers growing up now, who are often sort of patching up CVs, doing a bit of this and a bit of that and getting experience in different areas as they get themselves established. Aside from the fact that there are all sorts of benefits to doing that, ideas might come along or opportunities might come along that you might never have expected and by doing those things you then learn a great deal. So I I didn't set out in South Manchester to write biographies and I never thought that I would write a biography but that utterly transformed my writing life, it transformed the way I saw the world around me, it transformed everything that was possible for me after that and that was because I saw an opportunity and because somebody encouraged me and without those things they would never have occurred to me.
0: Obviously, the the biography you're talking about is a biography of Alistair Gray, which takes us, I I like a seamless link in this podcast, and it takes us. Oh, yeah, I'm helping you out. I
1: knew that was coming.
0: I wrote the list myself. uh, Your favourite book from kind of teenage student formative years, and it is a book by Alistair Gray, and the one that you've gone for is Poor Things. Poor Things is always the Alistair Gray book that I recommend
1: to people first that haven't heard of Gray. I've spent about half of my life overall in Scotland. But any time I'm out of Scotland, whether I'm travelling or do book events or just chatting to non-booky folk who will say, oh, didn't you do that thing about that fella? Who is he again? <laughs> you know, people that might not necessarily have be steeped in grey folklore or know their visual arts or know his place in Scottish literature. If they're just saying, oh, well, what what should I read by him? Is he good? Oh, he's good. Right. What should I read? Poor Things is always the one I go for because I feel it has... It's got immediacy and it's accessible, but it also has many of the elements that are Grey's stronger suits. So playfulness with form and design, just vivacity. It's a response to a number of Victorian stories that are recognisable. It's kind of a, a Glasgow Frankenstein. And it's also got the nods to so many other Victorian novels. It's pacey, it's funny, and it's got a wonderful heroine it's stories inside stories inside stories but anybody could read it and it's great fun whereas although my love for Lanark is huge I wouldn't recommend Lanark as a way in to anybody I mean if you love poor things and if you've read several others and you know a little bit then I would recommend it because I just feel it needs a different kind of attention and patience and and it's you know it's, it's hard going hard going that's okay to say you know it should yeah. be hard going but um, I always think Poor Things is a great way in. And it was, I was bought a hardback edition for my 21st birthday. And I didn't actually study Poor Things as an undergrad. I studied Lanark in a module called Modern Scottish Literature at Strathclyde. That is where I first discovered many of the great 20th century Glaswegian writers. There was something about Grace simplicity with language and clarity, but playfulness that hugely appealed to me. But it wasn't just that. It was about, it was about the doubt in the work, I felt. Although it was political work, it wasn't dogmatic. It felt like it was humble and accepted multiple, possibly conflicting versions of the world. It's difficult to describe, but I felt like I there was something in it that really appealed to me because I'm interested in writing about doubt and I'm interested in, in doubt as a concept anyway. And so it was Grey that I really latched onto rather than, say, Kelman or anybody, Leonard or anyone else. And I then just read everything and absolutely felt head over heels for it.
0: Cause it's just funny when you you touched earlier on on you know the fact that maybe contemporary Scottish kids should maybe be learning more about Scottish literature and being reading more. And I I came through Scottish education at a time where we didn't. And I first came to Alistair Gray. I ended up going and doing some night classes at, up at Glasgow University just on 20th century Scottish literature. It was just a way to kind of keep my brain ticking over. And so you would get a book. You would we would read it. And then the, the following week, we would discuss it in class. And it was great just to get back into that way of reading a book, but trying to analyse it and then getting other people's thoughts. We did Lanark over two classes because of, you know, just the complexity of it. But it really helped me because I think just reading it, as you touched on, just reading it myself, I think I might have toiled a bit, but just being able to go in and have somebody speak about it and then either you voice what you thought or even your, your questions, your doubts. in it, it made me appreciate the book. I still think... Although up here people would know Alistair, I still think he's maybe underappreciated in terms of you know the wider Scottish readership. I think Poor Things is just that, as you described there. which I think it's a brilliant novel that maybe people don't know it as as well? People may maybe be able to say, yeah, he wrote, he was a guy who wrote *Lanark*. They might not be able to list these other books, but *Poor Things*, I think, it's just a brilliant novel uh, that more people should know about. More people should be reading.
1: It's right up there. I mean, it's interesting. I think the longer time goes on, the more that Alastair is closely associated with Lanark. You often see him cited as the Lanark author in articles about him. And although he does definitely have an international reputation, and that book was widely translated. In fact, Poor Things was a big commercial success at the time. It won the Whitbread Prize, uh, which was a big deal. Jonathan Coe was on the, the judging panel that year. There was even an American tour that he did in the early 90s. It was, a, it was a book that was commercially successful as well as prize winning, and it did have an impact at the time. I think because Lanark was so transformative, it did something that was broader about the way that Scotland saw itself that Poor Things didn't, although none of his other books did in the same way. So although there are 30 or 40 other fantastic books and there's an absolute huge treasure trope there, I think it's understandable why Lanark is the one that is continually returned to and the, the, the landscape that some of the characters in, in Lanark are complaining about was transformed simply by the publication of Lanark. That in itself is something extraordinary, really. Um, it's hard for people coming to Glasgow now or growing up there, I think, that have known nothing else but a landscape with Alistair in it. And by that, I mean physically. So in the mural at Hillhead, in the auditorium at Oran Moore, in the mural at the Ubiquitous Chip, it's hard for them to imagine a landscape without him in it or with a landscape with him at the margins, or indeed a landscape where there wasn't much for Scottish writers coming up because it's so incredibly vibrant and international now. But it really wasn't that long ago that Edwin Morgan was referring to it as a wasteland. By that he meant there was no publishing opportunity. There wasn't wasn't much in the way of the kind of community now that I think that many take for granted. There are exceptions to that, of course. I'm always wary of generalisation, but it's incredibly transformed and Lanark was such a big part of that that I understand why people keep coming back to it.
0: I mean, one of the things in my, in my day job, uh, I work at the, the Celtic View and it's the magazine for Celtic Football Club. And back in 2001, the first time the club qualified for the Champions League group stages. So we wanted to mark it in a special way. So we actually commissioned Alistair to design a special front cover just for the, you know, just to, to commemorate that. And it's it yeah, made... I know, I know. I'm the,
1: I'm the ultimate grey nerd. I, I, <laughs> this was part of my homework in the early 2000s.
0: Well it remains it remains the biggest selling issue of the Really? The magazine. Yeah. And it's actually the day we are actually speaking on August the eleventh, although the, the podcast will go out later. And this is actually the fifty fifth anniversary of the Celtic view. So it's been going for fifty five years. That issue wow. was the biggest selling issue. We get loads of publicity about it. And I think a lot of people who wouldn't normally buy the magazine well might not be interested in football or Celtic, but because Alistair had designed the cover it was always it was always one of my proudest moments. And got you know, I went out for dinner with him and his, his wife ahead of doing it. And it was just, you know, as somebody who was a fan, it was a great thrill. And obviously, you know, you touched on the fact you, you know, you're a fan, you became his biographer, his friend as well. And that must have been a, a great experience for you as well.
1: Well, that was my ultimate education educational experience. It was hugely important for me personally. And I don't think I would be a writer today without it. But there were some really mundane ways in which it helped as well as inspirational ways. He paid me about three times what I was getting in the pub at the time to be his secretary. He said he'd pay a tradesman's wage. And that often meant paying somebody else more than he was being paid himself for whatever it was he was doing. But I should say that I only got the gig as Alastair's secretary because... Uh, Morag, his wife, was absolutely sick of having to do it herself. <laughs> and he'd had a number of secretaries beforehand. Often young writers were on their way up who needed a little bit of support or artists on the way up. And he never used a computer himself. He always said, I always assumed a computer was a more complicated version of a typewriter. And I never used, I never learned to use one of those." <laughs> so he needed somebody to help. At the time, I was one of his tutees in the two years that he was a professor at the Emlet course in Glasgow. In many ways, he was an absolutely terrible tutor. He would rewrite absolutely everything that you did. There were huge digressions and the meetings would often go on for hours and would often be more about him than they were about you. But in amongst that, although I knew that that wasn't ultimately hugely helpful to my own writing, I felt like I was getting such a huge education. And at that point, I knew enough about Alice to, to know what a privilege it was just to be in his company. I felt like I could learn something from that. And So when he needed a secretary, I asked if I could do it. And then before I knew it, I was sitting at his computer in his bedroom five days a week as he was pointing at the screen with a hovering finger and literally making sentences up off the top of his head and going, move that word, shift that word back, delete that one, replace that one, write it again. So there were mundane ways that helped. There were ways in terms of editorial that showed me how a writer could live. I did his correspondence and set up his first email account and had to explain what junk mail was to him. That was a good laugh. You know, although I didn't have any particularly great secretarial skills, I couldn't type fast, but you didn't need to. It was just an opportunity to see him at work. And that was absolutely incredible. That was and will always be the biggest impact on my writerly life. And because he was so many years older than me as well, and he was in, in his later years of what he'd already achieved, everything he wanted to achieve and then was still going. I think he was at peace with what he'd already made and just kept creating things that he enjoyed. And so there was something worthwhile in seeing that at work as well, rather than seeing writing as a kind of an obligation or something that was to be complained about or was hard work. You know, I never felt like that's what I was seeing. So that was definitely the, the biggest influence on me. In seeing that, I then saw an opportunity. I thought, people in Scotland in 100 years, I kind of want to know what it was like to be in a room with Alistair Gray. And here I am. And nobody's done this yet. And Alistair always used to say, even if fame, <laughs> even if the desire for fame and money, drive somebody to make something that is not yet made that is legitimate I mean, he always said it with his tongue, tongue in cheek but he meant it as well I think and there was something that didn't exist which was nobody had although there were millions of pieces about Alistair Gray and lots of interview profiles and lots of articles and academic stuff and there've been academic books nobody had attempted the, the life yet and I thought well I can do that but I can do it if I can also do a series of portraits about him because I, I just felt like I'd sat with him for so many hours that I could do the voice. I thought if I could do the voice on the page, then the project is worthwhile. Because anybody can sit with a pile of the books or look at the, the visual art and critique it. And I don't think I did that better than anybody else. Or anybody can do a walk through the life or find out where he grew up or where he went during the war. But maybe not everybody could do the voice and the scenes, which are portraits talking to him about his mother having a whiskey with him, driving him to a friend's funeral, watching him paint, all those sorts of things that became scenes in the biography.
0: You're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy and my guest, Rog Glass. And, Rog, we're on to... Your third book choice in this podcast, and that's a book you'd recommend to anyone, and the book you've chosen is Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankine.
1: Oh, this, uh, this book is like a punch in the face. It's brilliant and particularly relevant at the moment, I think. So I first read this book in around 2014, 2015, when the Black Lives Matter movement was really breaking out in America. For folks that don't know, this is a sort of hybrid book that is part prose poetry and part art and part film it was a rarely for poetry it was new york times number one bestseller this isn't an, an obscure book it had a huge cultural impact at the time i think that there were subsequent versions of the book that were changed as time went on what was added were new incidents so what incidents were, were covered in this book well they were ordinary everyday racist incidents in the united states and some of them were huge some of them were very very small Some of them were personal. Some of them were things seen through the TV. There's a famous sequence about the treatment of Serena Williams um, in a particular match. But many of the pieces came out of interviews that Rankin did with other people that she knew. And she just asked folks that she knew for moments where they felt that they were, were, and the way that she puts it is reduced to their race. And I, I love that phrasing because it acknowledges that identity is something, it matters to everybody, but it's not everything. That you are, and there's something inherent in that that I really identify with very strongly. And these these moments are incredibly powerful. It's funny; it's the smallest ones, really, that I remember the most. Um, there are moments where somebody is walking up to somebody else's house and they have a meeting or an appointment. I think it's a physiotherapist appointment. The woman comes to the door and sees a black person at the door and starts to try and shoo them away. Then they realise that in fact this is somebody who's there for an appointment and that they're expecting them the person at the door is mortified and starts apologising, but of course it's too late. Just these tiny little everyday moments of reduction, and they're juxtaposed in a really interesting way. It's it's beautifully poetic prose. The individual pieces are in amongst various different works of art from from different periods. There are stills from the Serena Williams section. There are references to racist killings of the time, and the subsequent editions of the book added new prose poems to respond to recent racist killings. I don't need to explain to you why that's particularly relevant now in 2020, but it's a book I recommend to anyone, and, that, and that's exactly why it's really extraordinary work.
0: I mean, it's quite. I mean, it's it's kind of sad and depressing in a way that, as you say, with each edition of the book, that there is this edition of a catalogue of of things that have happened. It's you know, the book was published six years ago, and you know, even just off the top of your head, you can think of even like in relation to Serena Williams. It, you know the way that maybe the the british media treat Raheem Sterling, for example
1: oh yeah, uh, yeah. Is, is a perfect <laughs> example
0: of they won't I, they won't say why they treat him differently but everybody knows that he and he's get the he's articulate and, and courageous enough to stand up and call it out and, and again there's just other instances of things happening in the uk and in america but it's it's kind of sad that there's a constant need for the book to be updated because you know, That's true. ...it's getting better you know
1: yeah you're absolutely right i mean when um when George Floyd was killed, uh, she wrote a new poem called Weather, which was published in, I want to get this right, I think it was the New York Review of Books or the New York Times, it was on the front of it. It's a direct response to that particular murder. So she's still doing these responses. She has a new book out just this month called Just Us, which is American Conversation, and that explores similar territory. But I, I can't imagine the time where it's not going to be relevant. There's a great line in the, in the poem Weather, um, which is easy to find online, I recommend it to you all. It says, whatever contracts keep us social, compel us now to disorder the disorder. I think mean, that's a fantastic line. And there's, there's something that is, is truly poetic, but there's, there's not doesn't feel dogmatic. And there's enough space inside each of these stories that are in Citizen to allow readers to imagine themselves in these situations or to feel part of it, even if they're not part of the same community. I think that is critical as well, because if, if your work is, is dogmatic or it's too obviously just trying to persuade somebody of something then it's not really art and you have to be able to have those subtleties those potentialities that the writer can't always imagine I think those need to be there for readers or else most readers just switch off you know, if you yeah. feel like you're just being told what to think they're less likely to engage and that's why Rankin has got the balance just perfect I think
0: and also, I think, it's, I think it's important that people don't say it's, it's a problem that's happening elsewhere. And it sometimes it can be easy, easier to look and say, oh, it's terrible, what's happening in the United States. There's examples closer to home that would, would resonate for, I'm guessing, that anybody who would read this.
1: Yeah, it's not about America, it's about planet Earth, yeah. which is why you saw protests in response to the Floyd killing in so many different countries, because it was recognised.
0: I always like in terms of the podcast that we we kind of go from the two extremes of a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again and this book is i 'm not sure if it's it two thousand six hundred and sixty six or two six 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 by Roberto Bolano?
1: i'm afraid i've cheated here paul sorry <laughs> i don't like i don't like being critical of anything, so I was looking for a way to dodge the question so I absolutely love 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, and I'm a huge fan of Bolaño. Having said that, if I live for a thousand years, I will never read it again, because it was an utterly draining experience, utterly exhausting, totally all-consuming. I lived in Chile for about four or five months in 2013-14. I was over there at the time they had um, an election on uh, around the 40th anniversary of, of the 1973 coup. In a way, I fell for Chilean literature in a way that has only happened to me once before, and that was Scottish literature. And there are all sorts of writers from that country and that community, um, a series of communities. It's such a big country that I'm now busy recommending to people all the time. Alejandro Zambra is one of my favourites. And Zambra and Balanya are also experts in doubt. But Balanya wrote furiously. started out as a poet and always perceived himself as a poet. He was exiled from Chile He went to Mexico for a while first as a teenager and a young man and then came to Spain. He was completely unknown in Chile and lived in poverty, did all sorts of different jobs and then moved from poetry to prose in order to support his family. It sounds like a joke. He (laughs) moved into doing literary fiction in order to support his family. But he wrote about 13 books in the last decade of his life, one of which was The Savage Detectives, which was hugely rare in that it was a Spanish language novel that was a massive success in the United States. And that instantly made his reputation. And he was writing 2666 as he was dying. He was waiting for a liver transplant. He was on the list and they never got to him. He died at 50 years old. A detail I like is that he told his children, look, this book is in five parts. Publish it in five parts and you'll make more money. He died and they read it and they went, well, this is obviously a novel that's supposed to go together. And they published it as one. That made an even bigger splash than The Savage Detectives did. It's set all over the world. It moves forwards and backwards over about 100 years. It has a part which is essentially just documenting of hundreds of killings of forgotten women in Mexico based on the real killings in Santa Teresa in the 1990s. And it's done in such a way that it doesn't glamorize one tiny little bit. It's so uncomfortable to read and in a sense so depressing because Bolaño is forcing you to look at how many people are forgotten and how they are forgotten and how little changes. Bolaño specialized in the detective story with no solution so he always was writing crime stories where nobody solves the crime at the end and uh, in short literary novels these are often work incredibly well in 266 it was absolutely maddening because you follow this damn thing for a thousand pages and nobody finds out who the killer is at the end (laughs) anyway it's the most wonderful novel and it reminds me of my time in Chile but I will never ever go back to it
0: (laughs) That's an interesting way to interpret it, the, the question. But what, one thing I, I was fascinated about was, you know, you mentioned the fact he was writing it as he was dying. Apparently, like the manuscript that ended up being published, that was, his, that was the, the only copy of it. It wasn't like he'd been through various edits or... So it was obviously published próximously no. as he'd written it. That's
1: incredible, yeah. And he wrote very, very fast. You can see that in the way that, that it reads line to line. You know, this is not incredibly succinct, understated, edited with a scalpel, minimalist stuff it is the pouring out of Bolaño's brain and it is wandering and it shifts this way and that and it feels like something that has been written on one manuscript. It really does and that's part of the appeal of it. Some people find it maddening but I loved it for that and you you might get two or three pages where a character is thinking about something and then they're thinking about five things it might mean and then it moves on to something completely unrelated. It goes through periods of high drama. There's a bit about Boxes in Mexico. And and then there's an incredibly dry bit about academics that are all seem to be having sex with each other most of the time. It's constantly shifting the way that Bolaño's mind was constantly shifting. I think if you were to do it in a conventional laptop way, then the book would never have been created. Yeah. And I'm always interested in like, the relationship between the way that things are written and the context they're written in and how they read uh, on the page.
0: And if, if, he'd, if he'd lived, he may well have published about five different parts
1: and made more yeah. of it. Perhaps he would have done, or maybe he'd have changed his mind. I mean, he's one of these writers that, a little bit like some of my favourite musicians whose, whose uh, archives have been scraped out after their death, everything that he'd ever put to paper has been published since. You've got to be careful now when you recommend Bologna to somebody because they might pick some half-finished thing that was at the bottom of the drawer that was published nine years after he died that nobody read and is rubbish. Um, because there's everything out there now, but, it's, but there is a huge body of incredible work that's been presented in all these different ways that Balanio never intended. There was another collection of short stories, The Insufferable Gaucho, that has got, it's got an essay in it, it's got speech in it, and there's stories that he didn't really like. Then the very best collection that he ever wrote was one that was sort of selected stories for the English language that he never wanted to exist. It's called Last Evenings on Earth. And in the late 90s, around the time that publishers in the UK were just starting to take a chance on Bolaño, like a really small chance. They published this book as a tester to see whether they could find any readers for him. And they picked stories of his from Spanish that they thought would go down well in the UK. And then that led to the, the best collection there is of his work, in my opinion. So the author doesn't always know best.
0: You mentioned there the fact you'd stayed in Chile for a while and obviously... You then fall in love with Chilean literature. And I was reading was an interview with yourself on Strathclyde University's website where you had you'd mentioned that you, you've written another novel called Once a Great Leader, which I think they describe as a, an alternative history of, of relations between Chile and the UK.
1: Yes, and specifically Scotland. I've been writing it for about six or seven years and it's not finished. And I might yet write it for another 10 years. We'll just have to wait and see. It's one of these that is all-consuming. And at one stage, it was about 300,000 words. Now it's down to about 100. I don't know what to do with it. But it will get finished, and it will be my best book in the end. And It, it covers 50 years from 1970 to 2020. And the vast majority of the book is based on real history. Desaparecidos, people who had disappeared from Chile in the early 70s and exile from Pinochet's regime. And in fact, there were a very small amount of, of Chileans that came to Scotland in that period. The longer the novel goes on, the more that it becomes imagined. And I have a, a Chilean heroine who I imagine becomes a great politician and becomes the Prime Minister of the UK after Theresa May. Remember that coup against Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> where they tried to bring him down by all resigning at the same time? Yeah. And then it didn't work. Okay, so I imagine that she comes up through there and <laughs> is this incredibly charismatic, unusually great orator who has a glorious success in the net and an even more glorious failure. And it's my way of playing with history, but exploring that Chilean history and the way that Chilean he- history speaks the UK as well. So Thatcher is a character, Pinochet is a character, the narrator is a biographer, of course. I'm continually returning to the same things, but in different ways, as many writers do. So I'm interested in writing lives. I'm interested in doubt and ambiguity and the difficulty of tying down what a life means. All of these issues that in some ways were in the Ryan Giggs novel and were in the, the Alistair Gray biography whether it will ever be finished i don't know but i quite like the idea of having a great lost novel i published a lot in a short period of time and that was fine but i'm kind of becoming fond of the idea that i should have a, you know, a book that i'm working on forever and ever and ever yeah and I if you, you just
0: put it out there so everybody knows and they're just constantly there's that sense of bubbling anticipation
1: yeah well alistair did it with lanark for 30 years and then he was an overnight success in his 50s so that's a decent <laughs> it's, a half, it's a half decent model
0: so, so you've only got about another, what, what's that, 24 years to go before we... Yeah, I think so. I'm going to need to write a few more million words and then come <laughs> Hopefully at one point we'll see, see the light of day. We are on to the last question in the podcast, and that is the, the last book you read that i currently reading and the one you've chosen is Department of Speculation by Jenny Offal. Re-
1: I'm rereading this at the moment, but I only read it for the first time a few months ago. It was recommended to me by Andrew Meehan, He's a great novelist, so I worked with it at Strathclyde. It was one of these books that I'd heard a lot about, but didn't really even know what it was. Um, I didn't know whether it was a, a novel or a short story collection or an essay collection. We just had a conversation where he was recommending me a few books. We were supposed to move shortly before lockdown hit, and then we didn't. So all of my books were in my new office at Strathclyde. In fact, my books were the only thing of mine that had moved to my office. I hadn't actually moved the rest of my life yet. So once we hit lockdown, I had literally nothing. And yet I was still teaching at the university and working with books every day, but doing it without a single book in the house. So after this conversation with Andrew, he recommended me a few things. And I started to get books through the door, which the kids found very exciting. You know, when you're not leaving to go anywhere because of lockdown, the post arriving is a major event (laughs) in a day. So Department of Speculation arrived and rattled through it in a day. Uh, It is a fragmented, but somehow coherent Narrative that is the history of a relationship, but it's always also reaching out and using different quotations from other worlds the whole time. It's kind of hard to describe, but it feels like a very personal non fiction story, but it's sort of framed like a novel. And I still don't really know exactly what it is, but it had a really big impact on me because I'm starting to write a book of essays about doubt. And this seemed to me like a possible approach, you know, the way, a way to talk about your own life the way that you see the world around you but also to use the things that writers use all the time which is literature to hide from the world and engage with the world at the same time I'm not phrase that exactly as I wanted to but I believe that speaking for myself I have often used writing as a way to hide from the world and engage with the world at the same time and I use reading the same way and in reading Jenny Offal's book I felt like either her or the narrator of that book was doing exactly the same thing and that's something that instantly appealed to me also there's something that's interesting about the copy that i've got with me so this is the one that arrived in the post and it was a secondhand copy on the inside page there's a thing that says may 2017 and it's underlined and then it says to the eye of you lucy so that you will learn to trust me again and yourself completely with love from i think it says john but i don't know so this book has been given as a gift to somebody else who was looking for forgiveness And in amongst the pages, get this, there are bits circled, things in brackets, messages, things that reference points in their relationship, things that are circled saying, read this poem, or this made me think of New York, or (laughs) all these sorts of things. And at times, it's it's like a kind of bullying of Lucy. It feels like a kind of bullying. And at times, it feels excusable and maybe even sweet in places, but mostly it just feels creepy.
0: I mean, it's um, almost a a story within the... It's a separate story. It is. is.
1: So my experience of reading Department of Speculation is partly about this relationship that is in the the book, but it's also about the relationship between John and Lucy. And I kept putting it down, and in between doing the dishes or being out walking with my children, I would think to myself, what did John do? He never never (laughs) says in any of his notes what it is he's looking for forgiveness for. And I wonder why he thinks that somehow the purchase of this book, which obviously means something to him, is going to somehow help Lucy forgive him. But I assume that she didn't because she sold it on Amazon.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm hoping that perhaps John or Lucy or somebody who knows them who's listening to this, we can, get the, we can get the full story.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely gold. But, but it does suit the book in an odd way because it's a book that doesn't answer your question. I'm a great believer that writers... You know, I don't like high horse writers, as, a, as a I call mean, them. People that feel like the place of the writer is to be above society and to comment upon what it all really means. That doesn't appeal to me at all. And writers that speak as if they know everything or indeed know anything, that really switches me off. What I love are writers that, where I can see that they're acknowledging their own vulnerability, their own lack of knowledge, but still trying to engage with the world around them in the best way they know how. You know, and, and that is a kind of wisdom itself. You see it in Kathleen Jamie's essays on the natural world, for example. And I think you see it in, in Jenny Offal. And I think you see it in Claudia Rankin. You certainly see it in Alice de Grey. And there's something about the way that Department of Speculation is delivered in this story about a relationship that's falling apart, but you don't quite know why. There's something that in that really works very well, being annotated upon by this guy, John. (laughs) Um, Or maybe it's a Jan or a Jen or something, but I think it reads John. And it's a kind of conversation between those two relationships. And I don't think I'll ever be able to divorce them from each other. They'll always be part of the same thing for me. It's like it was absolute gold. It's gold.
0: One of the the recent guests on the podcast, Catherine Simpson, during the course of our discussion, she was talking about how she quite liked getting books that were annotated by previous owners, and and she thought that added something to it. Generally, I don't like getting a book where people have written in it. It's just it's always been a thing.
1: You would would hate this. You would absolutely hate (laughs) it. Poor Lucy can hardly enjoy a single line without John circling it or underlining it. At one point on page 15, I've got it right here. Okay, I'll just read you a couple of lines. That year I didn't travel alone. I'll meet you there, you said. And John's underlined, I'll meet you there, you said. But it was late when we spotted each other at the train station. You had a $10 haircut. I was fatter than when I'd left. It seemed possible that we traveled across the world in error. And then he underlines the final line. We tried to reserve judgment. And then John adds a smiley face. I mean, (laughs) there is absolutely no excuse for that sort of behavior. How can you... How can you... Oh, I don't even know where to start.
0: (laughs) We were talking about you know you mentioned obviously the, the novel that you're, you're working on you started working on a, a book of essays as well and how do you find that balance between obviously your own writing and your work in, in terms of encouraging others to write because I'd imagine that can at times be all-consuming as well in terms of mentoring people lecturing oh yeah and, and, and a lot of reading in itself
1: it is there's no doubt about that and certainly if you're a part-time writer then if you're part-time academic you've got more time to write there's no doubt about that But I get so much out of it and the job that I've just got is the job that I've been after for about 20 years basically and I'm really really excited about being able to lead the emulator at Strathclyde and being able to mentor writers in the way that I was mentored by others. My first mentor at Strathclyde was Robert Alan Jameson he's a brilliant and underrated Scottish writer. He was the writer in residence at Strathclyde when I was an undergraduate he was the first writer to encourage me the first person to encourage me in my creative work at all and so if you had somebody like him, my experience with Alistair and lots of other things that have happened to me, I just feel like mentoring others is the best thing that a writer can do, really. Of course it means there is less time and I've worked slower since, but then I've also learned more, I think. You're part of something trying to build something and although I'm an outsider to Glasgow and to Scotland and I'll never have the accent, I do really care about Glasgow. I do really care about that institution that I'm working at and I do really think that there's huge value in supporting young writers. Now, I know that some people are, are a little bit sniffy about it but I really believe that this is just the way that communities of writers work in modern day. Thankfully things are a little bit more egalitarian than they used to be. No longer a case of oh you know somebody's uncle at Bloomsbury live around the corner and you've got plenty of money to sit and write. It's a little bit more open than it used to be and ordinary folk can do it. Alistair used to say that uh, learning to write was a little bit like being a brain surgeon. Obviously, you need to be born with steady hands. Nobody can really teach you that. I don't have steady hands at all. But you can teach people all all of the other elements that you desperately need to know in order to be a good brain surgeon. Those things can be taught. So I believe that you can do that on a writing program. That added to encouragement, community, mentoring. Those are the kind of things that make us feel less alone. And those things have always really mattered to me hugely. So yeah, you've got the challenge of somehow balancing, supporting lots of other people with taking time for yourself as well. And I do certainly work more slowly than I used to. But then I also feel like I'm part of something in a way that I didn't. So I was a a freelance writer for quite a while and just did my own writing. And I miss being part of something. I mean, we're not in the office at the moment. (laughs) Nobody's in the office. We, nobody knows when they'll be in the office again, but there's an open plan office at Strathclyde um, and I've been in an office on, on my own for years and I realised as soon as I was in it just how much I enjoyed that interaction with other people and, that, and also that in talking to other people who care about writing, who care about books, you learn a lot more that way. Certainly I do. Yeah. Right? And Maybe not everybody works the same way, but I feel that gives me ideas and gives me energy as well. So for example, spending time with Andrew, and talking over his favourite stuff, what we're working on, sharing a little bit of work with each other. That's not something I'd necessarily be able to do if I was working in isolation. And so there are a lot of positives to being in the academic environment, even though it's very hard to deny you get less time for your writing. Of course you do, because you've only got a finite amount of time.
0: And nice as well in terms of your own journey, in terms of writing, starts off at Strathclyde and comes full circle, as it were.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Also in the wider city, you know, I did my PhD at Glasgow University and when I did the MLIT in the olden days, it was actually joint between both institutions. And I feel like a lot of my work has been about Glasgow studies, obviously from the outside. I'm an outsider, there's no doubting that. But my, a lot of my life's work has been about trying to make sense of, of Glasgow and a lot of the, the work I've got on Alistair Gray coming up over the next few years is going to be Gray Studies as Glasgow Studies. So there is a kind of circularity to that, but it's not just about Strathclyde, it's about being back in that city that had such a huge impact on me. And I came from a very, very different background to many of the people in, in that city. I was from a very Orthodox Jewish background. I learned Hebrew and Bible studies at my primary school. We supported Israel like it was a football team. And I didn't learn what Palestine or Palestinians were until I was living in Israel and realised that I didn't really want much to do with it at all, or, or more, rather that I was very uncomfortable with it. And I moved from there to, to Glasgow as a 19-year-old, knowing nothing about the place. But pretty much since that point, Glasgow, the study of Glasgow, the reading, reading about it and learning about it has been my primary interest. And so that does feel like, assuming I can ever actually move there, COVID-willing, <laughs> that that will be a satisfying kind of circularity. And then I don't think I ever want to move again. I think then I'll be happy <laughs> to yeah.
0: stay. Well, it'll, be good to be, it'll be good to have you back in the city. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, listen, sadly, uh, Rog, we're, we're out of time for the, the podcast. It's been great talking to you about some of your, your favourite books and uh, I will be looking forward to, in about 24 years' time, reading uh, Once a Great <laughs> Reader.
1: <laughs> oh, it'll be a great novel in 2040-something. <laughs> Yeah, look out
0: for it. Yeah, but listen, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.